0: The great duty of the believer is to be governed by the will of God. The calling that the Christian has before God is to submit himself to what the Almighty wants for him. He is to bring himself under the divine will for his life. Now that... Answering to that call of bringing yourself under the divine will is difficult to do in the face of adversity. It's hard to say with our Lord, not my will, but yours be done in the face of trials, especially the ones that seem to make no sense. The money that you worked hard for, all of your life to save is inflated down to worthlessness. The home that you spent so long building is burnt to the ground. A spouse that you loved and love is stricken with an awful disease that make you even long for his or her death. Death snatches a loved one or loved one's. Away suddenly from you and you are left alone when you never thought that that could happen. It's not easy at that point in the face of that kind of turmoil to bow your knee to God. It's not easy then to resist the temptation of cursing God and dying. It's not easy to resign yourself entirely to the one who made you. But you have to. If you will fulfill the very end of your existence, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, you must. And the Word of God itself tells you how you can do this. The Bible tells you how you can look up to God, even when His hand is pressing heavy on you. That's what our text from John's Gospel this morning addresses. I want you to turn with me to... John chapter 14. And read with me verses 1 through 6. It says in the Word of God, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray together. You indeed are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would impress that upon us this morning and that you would help us to look to God. For your name's sake, amen. amen. Now, again, here is a text in which the Spirit of God outlines for you the twofold remedy for a troubled heart. The twofold remedy for a troubled heart. He gives you two solutions here for dealing with hardship, for submitting to God even when He gives you a bitter cup to drink. And the first one, the first of those solutions that you are to employ in order to bring yourself under the divine will, is to remember God's kindness. Remember God's kindness. Notice uh, verse 1 in the first half of verse 2 here. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. You might remember from last week that Christ at this point is having a conversation with Peter of all people. He uh, had said before these words, he told Peter that he uh, was going to deny him three times. He says to Peter, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But now he turns over and he addresses all of the disciples. Uh, he says, Do not let your, plural, your heart be troubled. The term. Heart here refers to the inner man. Something was happening inwardly to the disciples uh, uh, as this evening went on, as this interaction with Jesus went on. And that is they became inwardly troubled. The verb uh, properly means, the verb to to be troubled means to be unsettled or to be disturbed like a crisp cup of water with a bed of sand at the bottom that when you stir it up, it becomes muddy all of a sudden. And cloudy and dark. This is what's happening to the hearts of the disciples. The verb, to be troubled, is actually in the present imperative mood. And the idea here is that their hearts were already disturbed. But the Lord is commanding them to stop letting that happen. To acquiesce to the divine will. Stop being troubled. You ask, but, but what is it? What was causing their hearts to be troubled? What is the thing that was disturbing them so much? And the answer is that in the immediate context, if you think about it, the Lord had told them that He was going to be betrayed by one of them. One of them was going to lift His heel against the Lord Jesus. And then He says that He was going to go somewhere else. And that they, the disciples, were going to be seeking Him, but that they would be unsuccessful in their search. He was going to go to a place where they themselves could not go yet. And if that were not enough, Christ also predicted that Peter, of all people, their leader, the strongest of them, the one who seemed to love the Lord Jesus Christ most fervently, would himself deny Jesus Christ three times before one night was over. So these disciples are sitting here listening to the discourse of Christ. And they're thinking to themselves, what kind of trial lays ahead of us? This surely is the dark night of the soul. I mean, we're sailing into a massive storm here, a deadly storm. This is the day of disaster. The Lord saying, stop getting anxious. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now that is the command... But you know that when you're anxious and somebody tells you, stop being anxious, you become more anxious because now you're anxious about being anxious. So it doesn't work. But notice, Jesus doesn't just say, don't let your hearts be troubled and then walks away. No, He gives them the remedy. Here is the remedy. Here is the ointment that you apply to bring healing to your trouble. And that is faith. Notice verse 1 again. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, replace your heart trouble with faith. Faith. Faith in what? Well, he says, believe in God. Which makes sense, of course, because God is all powerful. We know this. All wise, all knowing, everywhere present. God is immutable. God is eternal. The, the psalmists call. Uh, God, the rock? In other words, you cannot find a strongest fortress to get yourself under than God, the Eternal One. So it makes sense that if you were to cast your eyes on God, regardless of what you might be going through, then you would have peace. But of course, the problem with that is that according to Exodus thirty three twenty, 20, no man can see God and live. And according to 1 Timothy Uh, chapter 16, verse 16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. And according to Colossians 1.15, He is the invisible God. So how can you look to Him? How can you believe in Him? How can you cast your eyes on God? He is transcendent. How can you do it? And the answer, of course, is found in Jesus Christ. The God-man, the mediator. That's why He tells His disciples, believe in God and then qualifies that by saying, believe also in Me. Notice He's putting Himself at the same level of the Father here, by the way. Believe in God, believe in Me. And this is this is not the only time he does something like this. Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Spirit. And actually, I said th- that wrong. Baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One name, three persons. So God insisted, or Christ insisted in His co-equality with the Father. Time and time again, He is equal with the Father. They both have the same divine nature. They are both God, even though the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father. yet the Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. And the great difference between them, from our standpoint at this point, is that one of them, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has become one of us. He has taken humanity to Himself. And in doing so, He has therefore become the meeting point between God and man. So that when you want to come to God, you come to the man, Christ Jesus. So if you want to come to the all-powerful, all-wise, unknowing, ever-present, immutable, and eternal God, you come to the God-man, to Christ. You have to believe in God Through His incarnate Son. That is what Jesus is inviting His disciples to do here. He is saying, don't be troubled, believe in Me. You ask, okay, but what do I need to believe with respect to God and His Christ here? What am I supposed to put my faith in? And the answer is, shortly: in His kindness. In His kindness. He's not saying, believe that God exists. No, he's saying, believe that God is good. Believe in his kindness. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, Believe in God. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Notice, he doesn't call him our Father, but my Father. And that is because, whereas. If you are in Christ, you're a child of God by adoption. Jesus Christ is the natural Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And He is speaking as such here. He is the Prince and Heir of all things. And He is speaking to his newly adopted brothers about the glories of the house of their new father. He is saying, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. You say, okay, the father's house, but isn't God everywhere? Isn't he omnipresent? Doesn't he fill in all things? So how can you say then that he lives in a particular place? What does that mean? How can you say that God has a home? And the answer to that is in the fact that although God is omnipresent, He is not present everywhere in the same way or in the same character. For example, in hell, God is ever-present as an angry executioner. He is a consuming fire. He is in hell punishing the wicked day and night without ceasing with all of His being. On the flip side, there's a place in which He is present in the opposite character, in His favor. This is heaven, the Father's house. This is the part of creation where He only shines the rays of His glorious love. Where every creature lives in uninterrupted communion with Him and with one another. Revelation 3.12 calls this place the temple of God. And 2 Corinthians 12, 4 calls it paradise. Because there is no depravity there, nor death, nor devil. By the way, Scripture tells us that when God made this place, it says in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word heavens there includes not just the skies and the outer space, but the highest heaven, the third heaven That is where the angels live. But Jesus is saying here that in that house, there are many dwelling places. The word that is translated here as dwelling places has the same root as the word to abide or to stay. So the point is that in the house of God, there are many places to stay. I will dwell in the house of God forever, says the shepherd. There are many rooms, not just for those holy angels that He made, but also for men and women where they can lodge eternally. That's why Hebrews 11.10 calls it a city whose architect and builder is God. And then in verse 16... He calls it a heavenly country, and Revelation refers to that city as the heavenly Jerusalem. So clearly, we're talking about a spacious place here, a place that is designed to house men and women, a place that is designed for people to stay in forever. The point is that God is a most generous host. He has built a great city for creatures to dwell in forever. A city that He calls His own home and He's bringing them in. He is magnanimous. He is hospitable. He is kind. He's eager to please and to give the light. Again, Psalm 23 speaks of the goodness and the kindness of God following the psalmist, following the child of God around as He is in that house being served by God. God is eager to please. God is eager to show his goodness. He is eager in his own nature to communicate his glory, to spread the joy that he has in himself. Matthew 25, 21, well done, well done and good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the Joy of your master. And then John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire, this is a desire of the living son of God. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So God is himself a cheerful giver. He wants to spread his joy. He's eager again to do good. And you need to remember that in the face of hardship. When your heart is troubled, you need to come back to the fact that God is kind. Lamentations, Lamentations 3.25 I read this before. Look at what Jeremiah says. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him, since God has brought your calamities on you. Let him put your mouth, or let, let, let him put his mouth uh, in, the d- in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, Jeremiah says, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. In other words, when difficulty comes to you, accept it, knowing that it comes to you from a gracious God, a God who by nature desires to do good to you and who will do good to you. That is the first solution here that we have for dealing with hardship. For accepting God's will in adversity. For bowing the knee and saying, God is good. That's it. You remember the kindness of the Lord. Here's another one. When your heart is troubled, remember Christ's work. Remember Christ's work. He points His disciple to His work. Here, starting in the second half of verse 2. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Notice He brings out the fact here first that He cannot lie. He is the faithful witness. If the Father had shut the doors of heaven so that no one would be able to enter, He would have announced that. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. But instead, he is offering eternal life to everyone who would follow him, everyone who would come after him. And he was offering that on the basis of his work of preparing a way for a people. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, by the expression, I go here, obviously, Jesus is speaking strictly as a man, because as God, He is also God, as God, He has been filling heaven with His glory from the moment heaven was created. And even while He was on earth, Jesus, it says, was still upholding the universe with the word of His power. He was still sitting on the throne of His majesty. But again, as man... Christ did have to ascend to heaven at one point. What for? Well, surely not for Himself, because again, as God, He's always been in heaven. But He says here, what for? He says, I go, I'm going up to the Father to prepare a place for you. The verb to prepare here was often used of people who would go on before a king to level the roads and to make them passable. So that the king might be able to travel. This is actually the same verb that is used of John the Baptist who was preparing a way for the Lord. But here the irony is that the Lord is preparing a way for you, for his followers. He's making a way so that you might get to the father's house. And of course, all of this language is meant to express the idea that the Lord Jesus was going to offer up His body on the altar of God's holiness. That He was going to make atonement at the cross and that He was going to pre- present that holy blood of His before the altar in heaven so that we ourselves might be cleansed. Hebrews 6.20, Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, in chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, it says, "...for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood, that, and that not His own. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer often, since the foundation of the world." But now, once at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So, Christ is a way maker. He's a trailblazer for His people. He appears in heaven first, having shed His blood on the cross. And after Him, all of His people follow That is how He has prepared a way. Now, to be sure, that cross work at this point in time was still in the future. When He says, I go to prepare a place for you, He's speaking of something that was going yet to happen that week. He was going to die on the cross and He was going then to ascend to heaven. Nevertheless, from our own vantage point today, we can talk about this work as something that Christ already did. So when you have a troubled heart, when you're not sure what is going to happen in the future, you need to call to mind what Christ did in the past. He died. He rose again. That is objective historical fact. He ascended to heaven. And He has prepared a place for you. And you need to remember that in the face of affliction. Now you also need to remember what He will do. So not just the past, what He did, but also set your eyes on the future, what He will do. Notice verse 3. It says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, The expression, I will come again here, of course, is a promise. A promise of Jesus' Glorious second coming and to be sure that second coming is divided into at least two phases. The first of which is the rapture of his church. Notice here that there is no mention of the destruction of the wicked or of the subduing of the nations, but rather the focus is on the redemption of God's people. Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself. The, the, the expression that is translated as receive you to myself can also be translated as, a, as I'll take you to myself. This is the moment when Christ snatches his people away who are alive at that time. And he gives them a resurrection body instantly. And he also at the same time raises up the dead before us. First Thessalonians 4, 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him, and are together with the resurrection saints in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That is at the rapture at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So there's a coming a day, soon, when the Lord Jesus will snatch up His people. When all the righteous dead at the same time will be resurrected. That is the next event in God's calendar. That is what we are waiting for. And that will set off the time of judgment referred to By the prophets as the day of the Lord or the tribulation. But while that tribulation takes place in the world and before that second phase of Christ's return, when He comes to wage war and establish His kingdom, we will be there with Him. And we'll be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says again, I will receive you to Myself that where I am there you may be also. The conjunction that is translated as that here introduces the purpose of Jesus' departure and, he, and His return. He left to prepare a place in the past and He will come back in the future so that you, His child, may be where He is. He will not be separated from you. And to be sure, this is again another proof of the deity of Christ Uh, Psalm 115 verse 3 says our God is in the heavens and the Lord is saying I am preparing a place for you in heaven and coming back to receive you so that where I am you may be also the assumption there is that Christ is God in the heavens and he is God he is God who longs for his beloved to be there with him beholding his glory. Now that is the future that Christ has planned for everyone who believes in Him. And you need to remember that in the face of difficulty. That is how you can smile at the present. Regardless of what it may be bringing you, you can smile and say, wait, what is in store for me? When your heart begins to be troubled, you recall that Jesus will soon come down from heaven and He will receive you to Himself. He'll never be separated from you. Now, here's another aspect of Christ's work that you need to keep in mind in difficulty. You've seen the past. We've we've talked about the future. And now we come to the present, what Jesus is doing. Look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus said, And you know where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, when the Lord uh, mentions the way here, he means his sufferings, the agonies that he would have to go through to get to the father's house. That is what he would have to go through to prepare a place for his people, agony and pain and cross and burial and humiliation. And he had been, to be sure, speaking to the disciples about this from day one. He had always been saying that before he could be glorified, he also needed to be put down. He needed to be buried and the Christ needed to suffer. That's why he says, and you know the way where I am going. Now, to be sure, some say here that this is actually a question and you can read the original as a question since Koine and Greek didn't have interrogation marks. So he could be saying, and do you know the way that I am going? And that's possible but if this were a question as you would you would expect the text in verse 5 to say that thomas answered jesus but it doesn't say that it just says thomas said to him in other words thomas was not so much answering a question no he was making an assertion about what jesus had just said And this assertion that Thomas makes is very much like the last assertion that he had made in this book. You might remember that when the Lord was going to Judea to raise Lazarus, it was Thomas who said, let us go also with him so that we may die with him. That's in chapter 11, verse 16. In other words, he thought that Jesus was actually powerless before his enemies, but he did love Jesus enough to say, I will die with you. So he had love for the Lord but he was weak in faith. That was Thomas' problem. Loved Christ, but had very weak faith. And here you get something very much like that. Notice uh, what is his reply to Jesus' remark uh, when he says that they knew the way that he was going. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? In other words, what he means is, if we do not know your final destination, although Jesus had just said that it was the Father's house then how do we even know the way which you are taken in other words this man is he wants to be with christ he is saying how can we be with you and he is troubled by Christ leaving but at the same time he's utterly confused he's not looking at he's not perceiving Jesus' speech through the years of faith but rather he's still assuming that Jesus is talking about some place in the world where Jesus is going to go and he is saying you have not told us what destination that is so how can we even know which road you're taking to get there So how is Jesus going to respond? Well, again, we've said time and time again that Jesus says to His disciples what is necessary. Not so much to fill their curiosity, but here what He does is He takes the opportunity to tell His disciples more about who He is and about what He is doing, what He does for humankind. He says in verse Six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, to be sure, the key to understanding this statement is actually in paying attention to the second half of the sentence. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. So apart from Christ, you do not have access to god the father you do not have a way to god the father your sins have separated you from god you've turned aside to your own way and you are lost and not only are you lost but you are also lost in darkness you are ignorant of god you don't recognize his authority and so you hate his law you're spiritually blind and deaf So you are lost and you are blind and you are deaf. And beyond that, you are also dead in your trespasses and your sins. You have no spiritual poles. You're like the ground that cannot bring forth good fruit. So it's ready to be burned. And so you need a way and you need a truth to enlighten you with the knowledge of God. And you need life to bring you back. You need to be healed from your guilt. You need to be healed from your ignorance. And you need to be brought back from the dead. And Christ does those things. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And He alone can do those things. And then He says, of course, no one comes to the Father but through Me. That means that all of the religions of the world, including Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism, all of them are false. They're the broad road that leads to destruction. Destruction. Jesus is the one way to the Father. And He is bringing for sure a people to the Father. This is what He does now. This is His work in, this, in the history of redemption. He is the way, the truth, the life. Are you part of that group? Have you set your hope on Jesus Christ? Have you believed in in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you confessed to God that you've broken His law? Have you cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy, for His perfect righteousness to be imputed to your account? Have you renounced all things, relationships, status, possessions? Have you renounced them all for the sake of His name? Because if you have, then He is leading you in the way of truth and life. You will get there to the Father's house. He covered your debt of sin in the past. He has promised to come again soon in the future. And He is your present help now. He is the way, beginning. He is the truth, middle. And He is the eternal life End of the Christian faith. And those are the things that you need to dwell upon in times of trouble. When the walls seem to be closing in on you. When all around your soul gives way. You need to come back to this hope and stay. The kindness of God and the work of Christ. You know the pagans who used to love virtue. They would say that to get through difficulty. You needed to convince yourself. You needed to talk yourself into the fact that fortune or fate is blind and deaf, because you would not be so tempted to be angry to something that was blind and deaf. That is such a superficial remedy. The true healing is the one that has been offered to us in the Word of God, that we, the people of God, have the work of Jesus Christ to look back upon and to look forward to And we have the divine promise that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that enables you to submit cheerfully to His will. And to say with the songwriter, whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all, unshrinking. Let's pray. We do praise You, Lord Jesus, for Your faithfulness. We do praise You, Triune God, for electing us in eternity past, for sending Your Son in time and space to procure the redemption that You had planned, and for then sending Your Spirit to apply the work of redemption to bring us back to life. We thank you for the work that you accomplish. And we pray that you would continue to accomplish it. Thank you so much for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.